All right. Are you excited for a food adjacent heist? Food adjacent. Yes. So it's not actual food they're stealing. It's so, cutlery. So what I have is an absolutely delightful story. This came in today okay. on the little Google alert for someone who was committing a heist. This is actually from India. Okay. A city called Assam. A uh, guy was in a house breaking in, stealing all the jewelry and stuff. And then on his way out, he stopped in the kitchen and he made himself some food. Okay. Uh, he made what's called, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, kichdi. Okay. It's like a porridge with like mm-hmm. lentils and rice. And he just stopped and like made himself this big bowl of kichdi, which I looked up the recipe and it takes a long time to cook this because you need like a pressure cooker and all this stuff. So I don't know how long he was there, but that is what got him caught because the neighbors were like, hey, someone's moving around in the kitchen next door. I know nobody's there because they're out of town. And they called the police and the police showed up and they caught him eating his porridge. And so he's in jail now. I wonder how often that happens. Well... Dude. It has happened at least one other time. You want to hear this other one? Okay. <laughs> it's not kitschy this time. This one okay. was in the U.S. So there was a woman in Massachusetts uh-huh. who stole a truck. Let me find the really good thing here. She uh, stole a restoration company's truck. They were unloading materials from it. Okay. And she jumped in and took off. And, and led the-, the carpeting? What? <laughs> It's a food heist. No, no, well, you, we're getting there. Okay. She led the police on a two-hour chase, and she was sideswiping other cars. She at one point backed up into a police cruiser. Mm-hmm. She dragged a cop for a while. Like, it was a big, long ordeal. And after two hours of being chased by the police, she apparently got hungry because she went through a McDonald's drive through On a high-speed chase. On a high-speed chase. And she ordered a bunch of chicken nuggets. And the cops are like, well, okay. Just pull in front of her then. And she was caught and she couldn't get out. Did she pay for the chicken nuggets? I don't know. It doesn't say. (laughs) Because that's that's my first question is, I mean. (laughs) Yeah, I, I have to assume that she was somehow mentally compromised, even if only temporarily, Mm. drunk or high or something, to think, I'm going to steal this truck for no reason. I'm going to run away from the cops with it, and then I'm going to stop and get some chicken nuggets. I need a whole bunch of restoration supplies. Yeah. And some chicken nuggets. And some chicken nuggets. So there you go. Two thefts. I don't know if I'd call them heists. Mm -hmm. They were interrupted by food. Yeah, I can imagine some... There's got to be someone who made themselves a sandwich while they were robbing the place, right? Well, yeah. And got caught. And successfully got away with it. Mm, or what was taken? You filed that on the police report. You're like, all right, we got we got my pocket watch. We got my laptop. We got six CDs, two slices of bread. Uh, my mom's <laughs> pastrami. two tablespoons yeah. of peanut butter. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Do you list it? I mean... Yeah, that's why you should always video the contents of your fridge every night before you go to sleep. <laughs> yeah, so uh goes to show that if you're going to commit a robbery, just steal food in the first place rather than giving up on your other one and stealing food halfway through. High-speed chases just don't seem to ever turn out well. 
No. Unless you're in a Fast and Furious movie, it seems like, you know what? Roads make it so you have to go where the police can follow you and know the direction you're going to be going. And that just <laughs> doesn't work real well. Mm-hmm. It's not like the old days where you could rustle some horses and then just be off. And then just disappear into yep. the wilderness. Mm-hmm. No. You're always like, well, he's on this road. He's still on this road. Yep. I have a Brandon bad story idea for you. Oh, I am excited about this. We should uh, we should call this podcast Bad Story Ideas. Bad Story Ideas, but Brandon. This one may not be that bad. In fact, I am maybe half to 60% expecting I'm going to say this idea, and you'll be like, oh, yeah, this book series, this film series, this has been done. Okay. But I had the idea the other day that in a lot of zombie media, the thing that often is most horrific is when they show the little kid zombie, right? Yeah. Like it seems to happen in The Walking Dead. Uh, I didn't watch that show, but I know I've seen, you know, mm-hmm. breakdowns of it and things like I mean, that. Just... It's the, the opening of Zombieland. Yes. What, arguably my favorite part of the whole movie is mm-hmm. the mom, suburban mom trying to escape from the little girl princess zombie birthday party. Right. And it occurred to me that that is truly frightening, particularly if you're an adult. Mm-hmm. But if you're a kid, what might be truly frightening is if kids were immune to the zombie disease and they were the only ones. Okay. So the bad story idea is it's like children of the corn, right? It's this idea where zombie plague happens and it hits every adult. Mm. But for some reason, it doesn't hit you if you're 16 or under or change your age depending on the genre. And it is a bunch of kids having to fight off their parents who are now zombies and the authority figures in their lives Mm -hmm. and everyone that, you know, they loved with the impending sort of Logan's run thought of, will this hit me? When I get a little older, what yeah. is it about being a kid that's that stops it from hitting me? So is this like the zombie plague is spread by biting or just like in the air? Yeah, I just, just I imagined it being in the air. Like you wake up and, wake up and every, adult has, every adult is a zombie. Yeah. Now after that, maybe it's like an initial spread. And after that, it can be spread by biting. But I don't know. I like the mm-hmm. idea in this thing of, you know, the horror is not that I'm going to get bit and become a zombie. The mm-hmm. horror is... If I survive long enough, then I will be one. Yeah. And what do we do? Do you just do it right as it's happening? Mm-hmm. Watch the Lord of the Flies sort of society build where like, when you turn 17, we got to shoot you. Yeah. Because somewhere between 17 and 18, it can affect you. What do you mm. do if you're a 12-year-old and you're hiding from your parents who are zombies? Mm-hmm. What I love about this is the idea that we are taking senile dementia yeah and just accelerating it yep and we are having teenage kids who are afraid of the time that their mind is going to fail Mm -hmm. and they're going to lose control of themselves right and not be able to remember their friends or their family i mean you could do this less as zombie traditional zombie tropes and just more monster tropes right you Mm -hmm. could do a quiet place type thing where you're hiding from the adults instead I can't think of when this has been done with zombies, Mm -hmm. but there are several YA properties 
that have done this thing where like all adults die or something like that. And right. I can't for the life of me remember any of the names. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is the classic question when you're making a middle yeah. grader. Why is why aren't the adults solving this? <laughs> and yes. there are answers of varying amusement to me sometimes. And the answer isn't doesn't always indicate whether the book's quality or not. Sometimes it's just like, we don't talk about why the adults aren't involved. <laughs> and that's Harry Potter, right? It's like, yeah. nope. They don't. Because they're not here. That was the number one biggest problem I had to solve writing the Zero G books Uh was, why is it this kid Mm -hmm. who has to solve everything on his own? And, you know, in book one, it's, well, everyone's asleep. And if we wake them up, they'll die when the ship accelerates. Book two was, well, because we've been blown out by a storm and now we're too far away and they can't find us. And so just coming up with reasons for them to have to deal with this on their own. I don't know. It feels to me, and and I don't actually know if this is one of the reasons, but mm-hmm. the YA market has changed dramatically yes. over the last, let's say, 15 years. Yeah. And all I of mean, the stuff that it yeah. used to be dealing with, you know, we went through the big sci-fi dystopia phase. And today, YA is really predominantly kind of modern day teen problem novels, social issue novel. Yeah, stand- that lots of standalones, sort of stuff. right? Yeah, lots mm-hmm. of standalones. With really mostly cool Mostly modern, that sort of thing. And I know some of that is because books like The Hate You Give were massively successful, right? This is what we saw with every other major YA book is that when something is that successful, everyone yeah. is going to copy it. Mm-hmm. And so- and everyone Part was burned out on dystopian. Well, and yeah, I think people were not only burned out on dystopian, but burned out on the increasingly bizarre pretzels we would have to twist ourselves into yes. to be like, well, this is why the adults are gone in this series. This mm-hmm. is why the adults can't help in this series. And yeah. just kind of removing that or... Which, you know, yeah, I don't know if this is... This is definitely a part of my background, right, as a writer, because I've mm-hmm. written several YA series and a middle grade series, right? And in each of them, including The Rhythmatist, the adults are there and helping, right? Like, I don't write the, yeah. the adults aren't there. I just write, hey, kid, you're on the cusp of being an adult. Join the adventure. We're all here. And this happens to be your story, which feels more like my epic fantasy background influencing me. Yeah. Right. Like I live in this space where I write YA, but I'm really an epic fantasy sci-fi writer mm-hmm. who occasionally have books that slot into that genre well. I hadn't even thought of it till now that putting my thumb on it, it's really just the adults are always involved. Yeah. Well, and I think that there's a lot of room for that. Mm-hmm. It, it I mean, it was massively popular for a long time, but, you know, trying to create adult problems that kids have to solve through adult means is really what YA became for a while. Mm -hmm. And so when I did Partials and The Mirador, both of my YA series Mm -hmm. basically were, these are adult problems that adults should be solving and in fact are these dumb kids are going to go off and try to do it their own way. So it's not that the adults can't help. It's that the kids are like, you don't know how to do this right. I am going to do something inadvisable and highly illegal to try to solve it on my own. Which again, I didn't do that on purpose. Mm -hmm. That's just how I explained it. 
Dan the parents <laughs> influence? <laughs> I don't know. When I started Mirador, I went out of my way because that is about a Mexican-American mm-hmm. family. And, you know, I used to live in Mexico with a lot of Mexican families. They're big. I wanted to kind of show that idea of multiple generations under one roof, big extended family all working together. And so I kind of went out of my way to make her family overbearing and Mm -hmm. kind of domineering in a way that she wants to go off and have adventures, but she has to go work with her parents in the family business and she has to do all these other things. And her dad's always bugging her and texting her to ask where she is and things like that. And she has her little sisters and her brothers and everything, her grandma, Mm -hmm. which was a way of keeping the family present, not necessarily as an antagonist, but it definitely came from the fact that I had teenagers at that point (laughs) and thought, well, let's do this. Let's tell, you know, a great big family where the adults are all there and you can't get away from them. I mentioned it earlier. Is it me or the cover's just gotten really good in YA lately? (laughs) I really Um, like a lot of these covers I'm seeing. I feel like that is across the board in a lot of ways. Yeah. There's been a lot of books that have come out lately that I have thought. One we've talked about on the show before, She Who Rides the Storm by Caitlin Mm -hmm. Sangster. That cover's gorgeous. Yeah. And I think it's more visible in YA because for such a long time, YA had basically three flavors of cover. There mm-hmm. was super close-up on a white girl's face. There was weird, iconic image of like a flower or a shape. Mm-hmm. You know, the Twilight series had these. The right. Wings series had these. Mm-hmm. And then there was silhouette of a teenage girl, maybe in a dress or maybe in very tight pants, usually looking over her shoulder so you can see her butt. Like, that was all you got in mm. YA for like seven solid years. And so now that they're branching out of that, I think it's more noticeable of, hey, this is a really interesting cover. When was the Pretty Dresses phase? Because I remember there being a year or two with Pretty Dresses. I want to say Pretty Dresses was like 2013, 2014, okay. like matched and mm-hmm. the selection. And we had a big period of time where YA was all about weird science fictional societies that forced teenage girls to dress up in pretty dresses and, you know, fall in love with handsome people. And occasionally kill people. And occasionally kill people as necessary. You, I would consider, like a straight-up YA author. You've written adult. But, like, I'm a sci-fi fantasy author who pretends to be YA now and then. (laughs) You're, like, connected to the community. You follow the trends. You know all these things. What did sort of... I haven't really been deep into YA in a while. Okay. Because you've been doing middle grade and other things. Yeah. What did you feel like watching the whole dystopian thing? Because I remember, like, just being in book selling when The Hunger Games took off. And... Watching kind of from the outside, really interested as this became the next big thing Mm -hmm. because everyone was wanting the next big thing after Twilight and they found it. But then after Dystopian, everybody wanted the next big thing again and no one was able to find it, right? It's just been until this kind of problem novel thing happened for a long time. I don't know if you went to some of these things, people (laughs) would be like, all right, the next big thing is Angels. Everyone write an angel book. Yeah, I think people got really hung up on, you know, vampires as mm-hmm. 
well, clearly what our audience wants is supernatural creatures, but a different kind of supernatural creature, which, no, I don't think that's what it was. And some people did have big success with that. Mm-hmm. You know, April Lynn Pike in the wings, she went with fairies. And there were people who did it with angels or people who did it with whatever, which I think in hindsight was just the the long tail of the same trend mm-hmm. of we're going to have paranormal romances with funky monsters. I've said many times that when Hunger Games took off, I just did a head smack, right? Because I'm like, of course, dystopian, big budget dystopian epics mm-hmm. would be a huge thing to take off in YA. Why didn't I see that? They've been a part of science fiction forever, but what people didn't put together with them was that sort of titanic feeling, right? Like a lot of the dystopian in science fiction was not targeted mass market, so to speak. It was targeted at be afraid of this one weird thing that's probably going to happen in the future when we all, there's no more housing and everyone's immortal. And so you're all going to be living with your grandpa who's going to get you all convicted and thrown in prison so he can have one room to himself. It's this sort of thing. It's the 1984 high concept. What it wasn't was Star Wars Star Wars. But yeah. dystopian. Well, right? and, and what teens. that really was, was I think that the move to YA yeah. is what made everything click. Because mm-hmm. when we were growing up, dystopia was that. It was 1984. It was Animal I mean, we Farm. had it The was, Giver, right? Yeah, but The Giver was much more 1984. Still, it was still this idea yeah. of everything sucks mm-hmm. and it's always going to be bad. Yeah. And the new wave that started with, even before Hunger Games, I would say it started with Uglies, yeah. was... Everything sucks, but we're going to burn it down. Yeah. The key that finally made dystopia take off was, look, we can change it. We can make it better. And in that sense, I find dystopia to actually be an incredibly hopeful genre. Right. And, you know, when the Hunger Games movies were coming out, there was this hue and cry about, look at, you know, all the the violence that's on screen and these dismal stories. Why are teens so depressed all the time? Really, you know, when you take something like Hunger Games and compare it to something like Iron Man, which was coming out at the same time, Iron Man is about maintaining the status quo. The world sucks, but I'm going to keep it the way it is. And Hunger Games says, the world sucks, we're going to change it. We're going to make it better. And in that sense, I think it is like qualitatively different. Okay, I'm going to quibble with you about that. I think you are leaning too hard. Like, what is Iron Man about? It's about a person realizing his life has been crap and he needs to be a better person. Yes. Right. But superheroes as a genre, they're not out to change the world. They're out to maintain the status quo. They're out to protect and save the world. Like, I think you are trying too hard. No, 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 no. Yeah. Spider-Man, he's the friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. He's protecting and saving people. Yep. He is not doing anything about systemic problems. No. Whereas something like Hunger Games is fundamentally about changing systemic issues. Yeah, but neither is Jane Austen. And you're not saying that about Jane Austen, right? (laughs) Most stories are not about changing systemic issues. They're about a person's life and Mm -hmm. the life that they're living in that. Like... Pointing at a superhero story that is trying to do something fundamentally different and saying it's about maintaining the status quo, I think is reductive. Yeah. Um, I think it's stretching to make a point. Okay. Mm-hmm. Maybe it is. But I think when you're talking about the wave of YA dystopia, yes. which was specifically about burning the old system down right. so we can build a new world, 
I think it's still a fair comparison. I think you can say Dystopian was about that. <laughs> and with, other things with, were not. Without stomping down other without things. Without stomping down other things. I right? enjoy stomping down some things. I think you can do that without saying people who enjoy superhero movies are all about maintaining the status quo. If you like superheroes, you're fascist. That's not what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. But it definitely sounded like what I was saying. I suppose in that sense, it makes a lot mm-hmm. of sense from that perspective of the why dystopia thing was really about kids looking at a flawed system and trying to change it. Yes. In that sense, it follows perfectly that stuff like the hate you give was the next big trend. Mm -hmm. Let's take all of this social angst that we have and take it out of the speculative and bring it into the modern world and have them dealing with real issues instead of, you know, which commando unit do you have to join based on your personality quiz? Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree with that. (laughs) And yet, you know, we're sci-fi fantasy people, right? Mm -hmm. There is something about the sci-fi fantasy aspects to it that I love. But man, it got so old, the dystopian thing. It did. It got so old real fast. We've talked before on this about an excellent book, Unwind, that uses just the most Mm -hmm. crazy premise. Like I said, it's a really good book. But- These premises were just thrown around right and left. I can't help but remember the time I went on a sales call. Did you ever do this? When I was brand new, I had asked Tor's salesman in Utah if I could go with him for a day on his sales calls just to see how books are actually sold. Mm -hmm. And I remember him being at Sam Weller back when it was called that Mm -hmm. up in Salt Lake. I went with him into the back room and he opened up the catalog and- I don't know if it was right or wrong, not making any judgment calls, but he opened up, he started pitching some of the books, and then he got to the paranormal romance, not the why, I just regularly, and his description was, he's a werewolf, she's an accountant. How many do you want? Okay. (laughs) He's a bugbear. You didn't say that, but you know. Yeah. He's this, she's this. Um, She's a vampire, he's an angel. How many do you want? It was a one sentence of of mm-hmm. that, and I can't help but think of you know the dystopian thing being pitched as okay. Um, this time, they are selected into groups because of you know beard lengths. Yeah. Uh, this time it's mm-hmm. or you know what is illegal in this society. Yes. This mm-hmm. one you're not allowed to fall in love. This yes. one uh, you're not allowed to have your own thoughts. This one you're not allowed to whatever. Yeah. And that's not to belittle. I'm sure some of these books are really good, but I can feel the whole genre toppling under the weight of keeping these premises straight and also feeling like they were. Yeah. So why haven't other genres had that same implosion? Right? Like you could make that same argument about epic fantasy. Mm-hmm. He finds a magic sword. Oh, he finds a magic ring. Oh, he finds a, right? Like you could go down the line <laughs> with that and yeah. do the same thing. Mm-hmm. And you're right that that hasn't ever, you know, been the thing. And I wonder if part of it is because people are looking for different things mm-hmm. in epic fantasy than they are in YA dystopia. I wonder if it's maybe just the audience. YA really took off as a genre. It's been around forever. Yes. We have to make that caveat, obviously. But it didn't become its own thing. It wasn't even its own section in the bookstore 
for the most part until Harry Potter and Twilight and that sort of stuff. Right. And part of what came with that, part of what happened at the same time was the blockbuster mentality, which hit YA harder than anything else, partly because of stuff like Harry Potter and Twilight. Right. The idea that this is a massive book we're going to camp out at the bookstore on opening night with a line around the corner. That never happened before. No, and beyond that, if I can kind of add something to this, the rise of the big box stores mm -hmm. moving into Costco's beyond that also fueled this when, you know, the Costco phenomenon is an interesting one mm -hmm. in that they carry books and they sell a ton of books, but they carry very limited titles. So if yeah. you are one of the books that's getting carried by your Costco's and your Sam's Clubs, then you know your sales just skyrocket. And if you're not, then you just don't sell to those people because yeah. those are the people that are like, mm -hmm. I'm going to buy what's at Costco because it's easy, it's convenient, and things like that, which really fueled this blockbuster mentality, yeah. which was the Harry Potter. It, it aligned with it, mm -hmm. and it was the same sort of thing. Yeah, and so YA has taken this blockbuster mentality and so it's less about you read what you want to read and mm -hmm. more about you read what everyone else is reading yeah there's some really big upsides to that mm -hmm. you know we have lost the kind of water cooler did you see this show last night thing that you yeah. and i grew up with we get that occasionally you know each time a new game of thrones episode would come out mm -hmm. everyone would talk about it that's long ago now. You have yeah. to, you know, now it's what thing did we binge for a week? Mm-hmm. And then... And books have mm -hmm. been able to fill a big part of that niche. Yeah. Because of this blockbuster thing. Everyone at school is reading, you know, Percy Jackson. So I'm going to read Percy Jackson so that I can join in the mm -hmm. conversation or so that I can play it on the playground or whatever. And so part of that, I think, is cool because it's encouraging reading. Yeah. But on the other hand, I do think that it has formed these unnatural tidal waves of, well, everything now has to be a magical boarding school. Everything has to be a paranormal romance. Everything has to be a YA dystopia. Mm hmm. Do yeah. um, you think trends move faster in YA than in adult? Yeah. One of the interesting things about the YA market, the demographic, in my experience, is that there's very little author or even series loyalty. Mm -hmm. And again, part of this is because you read what everyone else is reading, not what you're picking for yourself. And that's this a gross generalization. Clearly there are teenagers out there yes. who are listening to this right now and who are mad at me for being reductive about what they read. You're different. I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about the group as a whole, even with really big names like Rick Riordan, who we just mentioned, people don't read a book because it's a him book. Right. They read it because of the series it's in and because of its availability, whether through a library at school or that's what they have at Costco or whatever. Yeah, knowing some people who had series that took off big then tried to launch another series mm -hmm. in YA, this seems to be yeah. spot on. And, like, and the audience just does not follow from one series to the next. It happens in all genres if you hit very big, right? Mm -hmm. You know, Terry Brooks has spent his entire life not wanting to write more Shannara books and then coming around to writing more of them. Arthur Conan Doyle had this problem way back mm -hmm. when. So it happens in all genres, but it, it seems to be a much bigger deal 
in yeah. YA than it is an adult. Like I don't, I can't think of, and maybe I'm just not connected to the audience, but I can't think of people who've been waiting 10 years in YA for a sequel to a series that they started that long ago. Obviously they age out, but I mean that the community is waiting and hyping mm -hmm. and super eager for that book. Whereas we could probably name two people that we have <laughs> been waiting 10 years for. And the adult audience seems willing to wait for that book for that series that they love, where yeah. I don't know. Well, and it's weird because a massive, massive chunk of the YA audience is not actually teenagers. Yeah. And so it's hard to point at it and say, you know, the YA audience caters to these five years of your life and you right. just have to sell within that window because, I mean, the vast majority of YA readers are actually adult women. Mm -hmm. I would very rarely have teenagers come to my book signings for partials and Mirador and those things. I mean, certainly they're there, but yeah. And so I don't know why that predominates. It might just be like you're saying. It's like, it might just be people who want to read a lot of different things mm -hmm. and jumping from series to series as part of like the book club or things like that allows them to just read a lot of variety. I know that, you know, Emily's part of a book club and they let everybody pick a book and they don't read exclusively YA, but they read a decent amount of YA. Mm -hmm. And part of what she likes about it is that she's reading books that she wouldn't have picked out for herself. Yeah. She's reading a lot of different authors and a lot of different genres. Which is cool. Mm -hmm. That's very cool. But I do see in epic fantasy, I, would, yeah. I really am excited to get into epic fantasy. I want to try to do mm -hmm. it again. Yeah. Because yeah. there is amazing author loyalty in it yeah if an epic fantasy fan reads your book and loves it mm -hmm. they will follow you to the grave uh sometimes literally we got year-end numbers i'm not going to say other people's numbers just out of respect but i usually pull numbers in january just to just to see i have my agent do it and it was nice being on top for a little while because i beat neil and i beat george last year neil beat me this year but Lee Bardugo stomped us both just completely. <laughs> With what series? The Six of Crows, the oh, Shadow yeah. and Bone. Okay. Uh, I guess oh, not the yeah, Six of Crows series. Of the, um, did the, the Netflix the, thing really? The Netflix things for her, like she increased, I believe she increased eightfold, might be sixfold. I have to go wow. back and get the actual numbers, but just amazing. She had good numbers before. That, she's yeah, a good she did. writer. Six of Crows yeah. is one of my very favorite fantasy mm -hmm. books. It's an epic fantasy YA heist, yeah. which is like all of my favorite things mm -hmm. in one pot. But, but I remember having a conversation on this show yeah. about, you know, this massive explosion of streaming services is yes. hungry for content, and that's going to create all of these adaptations, but mm -hmm. are people actually going to watch them? So, and Shadow and Bone is one of the examples we used, and, and yet it apparently did. it totally it paid off. shocked us completely. Wow. Now, if you compare those numbers to Wheel of Time and Witcher, mm -hmm. Wheel of Time and Witcher did not get the boost last year that Six of Crow or that... It's not Six of Crows. I know it's a different series yeah, within yeah. the same world. Mm -hmm. The Grishaverse got, but I think it might be the same thing that we're talking about. So if you're going to go and you're you're a reader who likes mm -hmm. to read in a lot of different things and see what people are talking about and be part of the conversation, and you've got these three series that are having big fantasy series things, and you go to the bookstore and you look and you see Eye of the World. 
mm-hmm. you see that it is giant and it is one of a long series of novels that are basically one big novel. Mm-hmm. Or you pick up The Witcher and The Witcher is also quite well written, but it is very 80s fantasy, right? Short stories with Tolkien-esque prose and things like this. Or you look at the Grishaverse, which is YA adjacent. I don't know. I think they might be shelved in adult in the UK and YA here, like my Skyward books. I, I'm not sure. But, you know, has a self-contained series mm-hmm. that is kind of got modern writing sensibilities and things like that. And you're like, which of these am I going to take to my book group? And which one are we going to read? Yeah. I think I know the clear winner mm-hmm. in that case. Well, and yeah, in that case, the Lee Bardugo is absolutely the more accessible one, mm-hmm. right? The books are shorter. Yeah. You know they're going to read a little faster. You know you're going to be able to complete a series more quickly. And the fact that what she's done is so smart mm-hmm. with having multiple series in the same world, you can read one of them. Who else does that? Mm -hmm. You can read one of those. And if you really like it, there's more. And if you are done after three, then you've still got a complete series. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, you know, there is an audience that will absolutely choose Eye of the World in that situation. They they definitely will. Back when we used to, you know, in the pre-pandemic times when I would Mm -hmm. do Comic-Cons all the time, there was an author named Brian Lee Durfee who would come to our booth. Mm -hmm. And he would just sit there and his pitch was the most brilliant thing I've ever seen. He didn't have big signs. He didn't do swag. He would just sit there on a stool. And as people would walk by, he'd say, hey, do you like big fat fantasy books? And they'd come over and he's like, yeah, this is a big fat fantasy book. I've got a series. There's going to be a bunch of them. It'll take you forever to read it. And he would sell out faster than any of us because there is an audience that loves that. He would target his audience. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. They want to read the big thing that will immerse you in the world, that has entire chapters purely of cultural world building, that has the big epic story with multiple viewpoints, a lot of what you're doing with Stormlight. Stormlight. You know, and of course he and, and everyone else who writes that kind of stuff uses you as a oh, if you like Sanderson, you're gonna really love this. I get to be I get to be that person now, which mm-hmm. is which is I'm not gonna complain about, right? Though there is a big thread on Reddit right now complaining about how much world building is in the books and how it's just too much, which is interesting. Yeah. But yeah, I I found those numbers really interesting. Lee is a great person and a fantastic writer, so I'm super mm-hmm. happy. Hats off to her. She gets to be number one. Yay. She gets to be number one this year. Good for her. I'm um, really glad and I'm really uh, excited to learn Mm-hmm. that that show paid off yeah. for her. Now, I want to know mm-hmm. if it paid off for Netflix. Yeah. Like, because, and we've talked about this before, the mm-hmm. differences in scale between a TV show and a book are so different yeah. that it could have been a flop from Netflix's point mm-hmm. of view and still spiked her sales I mean, times. her sales were higher than Game of Thrones was a couple years back when I checked Game of Thrones. Okay. So not mm-hmm. by much, but by just a smidge yeah. higher than Game of Thrones pre-season eight. After season eight, Game of Thrones sales have waned, uh, yeah. as one might expect with the series being mm-hmm. done. And the conversation among those who only read a few fantasy books a year no longer being about Game of Thrones. But yeah, I found it really interesting. Certainly Wheel of Time and Witcher got boosts, but not yeah. to that extent. Now, did you watch The Witcher? I have not yet watched The Witcher. Do you intend to? I intend to. 
how about this? I haven't sat down and watched The Witcher. I have had people say, hey, you need to see this part. And I've watched that part of The Witcher and been like, wow, that's really good. I really <laughs> like that. And I've read The Witcher. Mm-hmm. And I think Henry Cavill just nails yeah. the, the role. I watched the Law of Surprise episode. I think I've talked about that I, before, which I is watched one of about, the stories I'd read. And okay. so I watched about half of season one mm-hmm. and absolutely loved him. Yes. I really loved all three leads, Siri and mm-hmm. Jennifer and Geralt. The show itself did not gel for me at all. Okay. I am worried about the the content level in The Witcher. Mm-hmm. Which is fair. Right. Like, I'm not sure I want to watch shows with like random orgies happening in the background, right? Like that sort of thing. I'm just like, come on, do we need this? And so that's why I have not sat down and watched Mm -hmm. it. I might just skip to season two because a lot of these shows, once they get their feet underneath them, are like, all right, we don't need to have random orgies to keep people's attention anymore. They are now interested in our characters and our story. And we can now just actually have characters in a story. Anyway, I think some of the stuff I've seen of season one makes me think little too much content. Yeah. I don't honestly don't remember. Mm-hmm. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> I did stop watching it, so I don't know. But, but did you know Henry Cavill talks about you in, in his interviews? He does mention me, I yeah. have heard. We talked about he, this several he's a times. fan of your books. I he's a fan that's... of a lot of nerd stuff. He's a very yeah. nice man. I've done a call with him. He... He's really, really cool. He's legit. He knows his nerd stuff. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, The Witcher as a show exists because he worked hard to get it made. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think that's very cool. I think he is awesome in the role. And I definitely want to see more. Uh, I just have to. (laughs) You have to get the edited version. Yeah, or something like that. Or maybe just skip to season two. I think that might be. The Black Bars version. Yeah. The problem is, like, you can't really edit some of these things. You just have to cut out vital, important scenes. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, eh, just in that case, do I just choose not to watch it because I'm not going to... That's that whole editing thing, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it's okay to choose not to watch something. It's probably okay to edit it too, but at the same time, if you're getting it edited, that's like betraying the artistic vision of those who made the thing in some ways. And so... yeah. That makes me uncomfortable also, just from an artist sort of, artist rights is the wrong term, but respect to fellow artists Mm -hmm. uh, sort of way, if that makes sense. Having watched many TV edits of shows and then seen the show, the movie later on and been like, wow, I did not get to see the director's vision for this show when they they edited it for TV. Yeah. So trimmed this down and kind of lost things. I am just hoping, since we're talking about adaptations, mm-hmm. we've got, you know, Shadow and Bone. Yep. And Wheel of Time and Witcher and yes. all of these, like Lord of the Rings mm-hmm. on Amazon that's coming out at yes. some point. I don't know if it's soon. Yeah, this year is what the plan is. Really hope that this takes off and gives us a nice boom of fantasy stuff again. Yeah. I mean, I can tell you, they come knocking. I've spent my entire career like trying to convince people Mm -hmm. to make my things, right? And now suddenly they are all here and been like, I'm sure get those same lists. What are the best selling sci fi fantasy things in the world right now? And they just get the whole book scan list, which is the Nielsen ratings for books, for those who don't know, and go down the list and they're like, all right, which one hasn't been made? And guess who's at the top? 
Like once you cross off everybody who's on there that already has Mm -hmm. something that's been adapted, you settle on one name and they come, they've been calling a lot. So let me ask you, Mm -hmm. to what extent did adaptation, if at all, because maybe it didn't, Mm -hmm. figure into your... Mistborn stuff because the early Mistborn, yeah, you know, fantastic. I think to this day still has my favorite resolution of a fantasy series. Thank you. But it is incredibly, you know, to quote the Reddit thing, maybe too much world building. It's very different and weird. Yes. Whereas the newer Mistborn stuff is basically Victorian, right? But with magic in it. Was that purely because you had a great idea? Or was that partly because this will be a little easier for someone to adapt it to? No, adaptation really wasn't in my head back then. Remember, I wrote that first one in like 2011 Mm -hmm. or something like that. And back then, nobody still wanted to make my things. Like there were people who like if Matt Scott, if you're listening to this, you wanted to make my thing. People did. Like, <laughs> legit people that I yeah. respect wanted to. But Hollywood didn't want to, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Oh, it, absolutely. And I've, so, I've been in that position before. Yes. And so they tried, and I wasn't thinking about adaptation at all. Like, mm-hmm. I knew that if I was going to be starting, I'd be probably have to start with Stormlight or Mistborn 1. It's like, at that point, we're not going to start with Mistborn Era 2, <laughs> even though it's more approachable. And I, th- I think that's, you might absolutely start there. I mean, look at how they handled the X-Men, for example. Right. They that's didn't true. start with the core X-Men team. They didn't. They started with the famous ones, like Wolverine, mm-hmm. who yeah. didn't show up for 20 or 30 years. Right. So. Yeah, I mean, there is that. And it's amusing how many people I meet who picked up the second era Mistborn books and hadn't read the first ones and come to me like, yeah, these were really great. And then I realized there's more. And mm-hmm. I went and read the prequels. I'm like, well, yeah, not really prequels, but you know, yeah, I understand the sentiment. But regardless, I'll keep you all up to date uh, for those who are <laughs> screaming at the screen being like, wait, Brandon, what? What's happening? People want your things? Yes, people want my things now. Um, the thing is, people always do. Like, I, yeah. I have a tiny fraction of your mm-hmm. fame and numbers, but I still am getting... You know, a pretty constant stream of studios and producers asking if the rights are available and then never doing anything with them. It's just the life of an author. Yes. Yep. So. So I can tell people, yeah, Partials has been under option forever, but nothing will ever happen. Ben, you should make that. (laughs) 